imagine you enter this new virtual body that you look down and your hands are these other hands. They move as you move perfectly, only you're a different race or a different gender. So you can experience the life perspective of a different person from within. You're listening to the Microsoft Research Podcast, a show that brings you closer to the cutting edge of technology research and the scientists behind it. I'm your host, Gretchen Huizinga. Today, we're here with neuroscientist and Microsoft researcher, Dr. Mar Gonzalez-Franco. She'll discuss her research in virtual reality, the importance of avatars, and she'll clear up the misconceptions between VR and psychedelic drugs. That and much more on this episode of the Microsoft Research Podcast. Mar, you have a really interesting background. How did you end up doing research at Microsoft? I think in life, there are sort of cycles that you end up doing the same thing again. Like I started training as a computer scientist, mathematician, and then I became very interested by neuro, uh, neuroscience. And then I came back to computer science. So it kind of uh, comes together. Uh, I would say there is always not a single route to get somewhere. And uh, definitely you need to take it step by step. So I wouldn't be here if I didn't do my PhD uh, with Mel Slater and partially at the MIT, for sure. I mean, um, these uh, Microsoft research really scouts for talent in, in the wide spectrum on a global scale. And you have to be there. And there is a part of uh, being lucky to be in a very hot spot uh, that is of interest to the company in a very specific moment. You told me that VR can trick the brain yes. and that people know it's fake, but they have a strong experience of reality anyway. So what's good about that and what's bad about that? And what do we take away from that? It kind of scares me, but it's kind of cool. So, yeah, it's very interesting because um, we are providing a real-time stream of information to our senses. Uh, mainly virtual reality has been based on visual and humans are very visual animals. Um, we believe what we see. And virtual reality provides that. It provides a congruent sensory motor uh, stimulation. One of the experiments I did, you put on some sort of glasses, an HMD, uh, with virtual reality. You put your hand on top of a table and you see a virtual hand instead of your hand. And that hand gets attacked. And what I find is that the motor cortex gets activated in the same way that it would be activated for a real attack to your real hand. So you really perceive this is your hand. And I think this is uh, pretty interesting because it means not only that you can enter a virtual reality, you can change your body in that reality. So what are the implications of what you just said um, in terms of application outside the fact that you've observed that you can make people believe that a virtual hand is actually their hand? Uh, some very interesting applications have to do with empathy. Uh, imagine you enter this new virtual body that you look down and your hands are these other hands. Um, they move as you move perfectly. Uh, only you're a different race or a different gender. So you can experience the life perspective of a different person 
from within. Philosophers and psychologists have explored this role-playing. This is role-playing to the maximum exponential. You're basically within a different body. You're talking about avatars now, yeah. whether it's just a hand avatar or a full-body avatar. Um, and that's the main component of virtual reality. I think avatars are becoming more important than ever with virtual reality. Uh, we experience reality and people experience ourselves through our bodies. And so it's very easy to evaluate things from the um, perspective of our own body. And in virtual reality, we need to have a body, an avatar that represents us. So if we can have realistic experiences through avatars, what other things might we be able to do through VR? How, how else might it help us? This is a, a very important topic in my research, um, the avatar that you embody. If you embody an avatar that is of a different race, you can reduce your racial bias. And this is some experiments that have already been done. There are other experiments that have shown that if you embody an avatar that is older, so it looks at, like you, it's a uh, look-alike avatar, uh, just a little bit older, uh, your financial decisions after you come out become more conservative. You're more likely to save money. And not only these, uh, even more traditional um, fears, like fear of height, fear of flying, um, virtual reality provides of a very controlled platform to perform th therapy uh, interventions. And then during an intervention, people might develop a crisis and you might want to take them out. In virtual reality, it's simply a headset. You remove it. Uh, you're in an airplane, you're out from an, air an airplane. If you want to treat somebody who's uh, fear of flight, uh, who has this... Uh, problem by putting them inside a real plane and flying them to New York, they might develop the crisis in the middle of the flight and there is no way for you to stop it. So in that uh, scenario, it's uh, much uh, more secure. So for anybody who's uh, treating this kind of phobias, uh, virtual reality is clearly a very good option. So is this happening already or is this just something that you're looking at one of the possible applications for VR in the future? No, people are already using it. Um, of course, there are only few people that have these really, really extreme phobias that cannot be treated in a less Im immersive way, like you could treat your phobias by going in the real world uh, rather than in the virtual world. But uh, it also allows you to treat your phobias from home. Um, you have a device at home. You don't need to go to a center to, to uh, be exposed to this therapy. So it also democratizes a lot, um, these uh, sort of treatments or interventions. Let's talk about the illusory nature of VR for a bit. I read an article where the headline said, and I quote, Microsoft says virtual reality could make you hallucinate in the same way as LSD. And that was a rather sensational version of what you actually said, I think. But can you talk a bit about how your work in VR is like and even unlike hallucinogenic drugs? 
when Jaron Lanier started the first uh, virtual reality company, he was faced all the time like, oh, is this going to be like an LSD trip? And of course, the answer is not. But um, I'm going to go a bit more on detail because I, I do think it's legitimate for people to be concerned about how a technology is going to affect their life. So um, virtual reality in the best form provides a very strong illusory setup to create illusions, illusions such as there is a glass on top of this table. But in reality, there is not such thing. Aumented um, reality has the same power. Um, but this is um, an illusion in which you never lose your higher cognitive functioning. There is no chemical alteration of your brain. It's purely sensorial. You're seeing this glass of water, it looks super realistic, and you move around and the glass is staying there. So at the end, it really feels like there is something there. And, but you take out the glasses and there is nothing there. Compared to, to drugs, this person has never lost their higher cognitive function during this illusory state. And that changes completely the, the, the topic because higher cognitive function is the one that allows you to make conscious decisions, uh, decision-making processes, what's right, what's wrong. And because that's never altered, um, you're always aware that this is not real. Versus when people do drugs, um, that's completely lost. So I would say that these are very two different uh, ways of experiencing reality. You're really interested in the societal impacts of virtual reality. So what are the best things about your work in VR? Uh, first of all, this democratization of um, uh, the technology arriving people who have never been able to own any previous technological advancement. And now all of a sudden they have something that includes them all. You know, it's like one ring to rule them all. <laughs> and augmented reality and virtual reality are getting there. Um, in fact, there is still a bit the fight on whether it's going to take the form of a phone that you put on, on top, or it's going to be a completely new device that you can render a phone in it. Uh, but it's true that it's going to be mobile in the sense that the battery, it's going to be there and you're going to put it on and uh, render from first-person perspective. Um, so that's very exciting because it's going to have very big implications on society. Um, it's going to change many things of how we live. Um, Give me an example of what you think that might be, like one thing that could help us. Yeah, I think in particular this tendency we have to buy so many gadgets, that might actually go away and we have one single gadget. Um, this has not happened with any other device. Even we have tablets now, we still have a laptop or we work on a desktop. Uh, if we're talking of a device that is going to be able to embed them all, you're really going to not have a desktop afterwards. You're just going to have this device. So that's because you can render a, a computer in it, or you can render a tablet, or you can render everything. Explain to me render. How does that work in so virtual reality? In virtual reality, you have 
a display, a near eye display, because it's like a glass. So inside these glasses, you digitally print uh, an image, uh, just like you would do in a regular screen. It's just that this screen, it's always available for you. So inside this screen, you can print different things. Printing in, virtu in, in, in digital is usually referred as rendering. What I hear you talking about is like a Google Glass kind of thing. It's, it's very different because Google Glass was uh, an annotation device. It would provide you information on the top, which is not blended with reality. This is not an annotation technique. This is a very different uh, technological system. And this is with current HoloLens. I can only imagine when we move forward, it's something more like instead of having a, a, a computer at home or a TV, I have my glasses know that this, this wall has a TV on it. And when I come home, the TV is there. You know, I don't need to put it back. But you're looking through a device, yes? You're looking through a device, like uh, glasses, normal glasses. So does everyone in your family have to have them? Uh, say, like you have a family of five. Uh, everyone has to have the glasses in order to see the TV, the virtual TV. We're working on this because uh, it's interesting to explore what each person will see. Because uh, also using these glasses, I could do something very unique, right? which is seeing what you're seeing. If we're sitting one in front of each other and we have a tart in front of us, uh, you're seeing one perspective of the tart and I'm seeing another one. What if we both could see exactly the same thing despite being on different positions? So, I mean, we start a very interesting uh, topic of uh, perspective. Wow, my mind is just reeling with what you're talking about and trying to imagine because my paradigms are so right now, right? Uh, my my way of writing is using a keyboard and a screen, but you're suggesting a whole new paradigm that we don't even If we imagine. do it well enough, you will have to change nothing from your current uh, interaction techniques. They will be embedded in the new technology. Let me just extrapolate here. I could have a device on and render a keyboard. Yeah. Or you will take your pen, physical pen. The pen will be recognized by these glasses and you'll write on a digital notebook. This is so sci-fi. Science fiction is a very good inspiration for science. What's the biggest limitation you face right now? You're sitting in uh, Redmond doing research, and if you could say, hey, this would make my life way easier than what I'm trying to figure out here. Well, what kinds of things are impeding your progress? I think Microsoft is very good at the giving all the resources you need uh, to do whatever you want to do. Uh, of course, you have to deliver, uh, but that's like in every other job. So I don't think I have uh, many, I would say it's time. I don't have time to do everything I want. But this is also good because 
it gives you the unique opportunity to focus. <laughs> you need to focus and you need to pick fights that you want, uh, the most important ones. And you actually said at one point that virtual reality can prove neuroscience. Yes. So there, there are some theories that are only available because they have explored very particular uh, pathologies that happen very rarely in the normal population. Maybe one of a million people have something like that. Maybe it's something related to uh, an epilepsy, removal of an epilepsy center that has detached your frontal lobe from the motor cortex, for example. So th this is very unique scenarios. And, and there are uh, people who undergo this uh, pathology of the anarchic hand illusion, which th they cannot control their hand at will. They know it's their hand, but they cannot control it. And this is a real thing in real life. Yes. Anarchic hand. Yeah. It's uh, of one the hand. Only. Yes. <laughs> no, but it's like simple things like you're eating a sandwich. I'm hungry. <clears throat> My hand knows I'm hungry. It picks your sandwich. So these people learn to, because the other hand usually is fully functional, they learn to hold their hand. So they just hold themselves. So they keep it from grabbing my sandwich. Yes, for example. Is that for real? Yes, yes, yes. This is a real pathology. Okay. But this is a case study type of thing. Okay. Um, if you want to develop a real model of this, you might want to try to produce the same kind of illusion on healthy individuals. And then you can see what happens in their brain when this happens and then compare it to what happens to a person who has this real pathology. Of course, these uh, healthy participants, once they go out from VR, they are perfectly well. They don't have any issue on their uh, control of their body. Just like when they enter virtual reality, they cannot control their body as they, as they wish. But the point would be to see what comparisons you could make in a healthy brain versus an unhealthy brain and how that might be able to treat this. Yes, and also to understand how the brain works in general for both healthy and unhealthy. Uh, so there are two mechanisms in the brain that uh, uh, we use to control our experiences. So the first one is a bottom-up. It's purely sensorial. Whatever we feel, we touch, we see, we integrate it in a multisensory way, and that's how we define reality. The other one is we have predictions, and sometimes they're very strong. Uh, for example, when we feel the phone vibrates and it didn't. This is a top-down illusion. Other people experience that too besides me? <laughs> yes. I'm not kidding. Yeah, it's called the... Phantom phone Phantom syndrome. Phantom phone, yeah. <laughs> yes. Get out. <laughs> yeah, so... Um, this experience is very sensorial. You would swear that you felt it. This is how powerful our brain is into manipulating our sensory input. And the interesting thing about the phantom phone is that we become aware of it, but there are millions of predictions that are being rejected without even us being consciously aware of it. Wow. So in virtual reality, we can kind of start separating both and seeing how they work one with the other. And it's very interesting because this, when you play with this, you learn a lot about the neuroscience on things that are very hard to test in reality. So 
I think virtual reality is definitely a tool for neuroscience. So let's say that you're this generation of virtual reality and neuroscience exploration, if you will. What's on the horizon for students coming out of university now? We have both in the U.S. and in Europe very important big projects. There is the Brain Project in the U.S. and the Human Brain Project in Europe, both of them with over a billion dollar funding, uh, which is huge. They are mobilizing a whole community to finally get to understand the brain. And still, we don't know it. And uh, certainly, even the people who are doing AI are very interested in understanding because if you want to simulate something, you need to know how it works. What would you like people to know about the research you're doing? I think in general, um, one of the things from a researcher perspective that is different from a product uh, developer perspective is the outreach. So the fact that we can communicate that you can do these type of things or you could use uh, technology to explore neuroscience can improve dramatically a whole community of science. So how from one science you can transfer to another? So you, you are kind of becoming that bridge. I think when we work in research, we can transfer something, show that is useful for something else, and then empower a whole community into using it in a different way. How does doing research at Microsoft differ from doing research at, say, a university or another academic setting? The way Microsoft research moves is very fast compared to academic research. So for me to pursue an idea, I need to convince my BP. Uh, so I need to pitch it. I have to think about it. Uh, but I don't need to write a grant and then ask this very big organization of uh, grant funding to evaluate it. And so it's much faster. So my ability to reach to people and to collaborate with them, it's incredible. And I love it. Just as we as we go, just say one quick thing about what's what you're the most passionate about right now in your work. I mean, aside from your, you know, I'm not life. very interested about producing tactile sensations out of the body. I know this sounds very weird, but I'm creating this system in which you're holding a virtual object and you feel the virtual object being touched, but not directly on your hands, you know, somewhere else. Uh, it's kind of difficult to explain it here, but this would mean that we can perceive touch in a similar way that we're perceiving audio. And this is, um, I'm working with uh, Christopher Berger on this, uh, he's on um, Caltech, and uh, we're both super excited about it. And this has been my work during the summer, and this has a lot to do with haptics. So if you have a very simple vibroactuator in your hands, and you're able to perceive touch across the space, that's even better what you can do in reality. Mar, you are fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. I want to have happy hour with you for real. Um, <laughs> Good. <laughs> Anytime. To learn more about virtual reality and Dr. Mar Gonzalez Franco, and the latest in Microsoft research, explore our website at microsoft.com research.